May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be ever acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and redeemer. Amen. A year after Knox, our oldest son, was born, I felt that new mom pressure to make sure that his first birthday party was as thematically memorable and as perfect as possible. A few months before his birthday, I remember logging onto Pinterest to do some research about parties, hoping to simplify the process. I was clearly a rookie because as anyone who has spent time on Pinterest or Google and searched baby birthday party themes can tell you there isn't anything simple or even sane about it. There are literally thousands of options. I don't remember what popped up nine years ago, but I recently ran across my saved ideas and found everything from how to make a multicolored balloon archway to recipes for chocolate-covered pretzel fishing poles. The options are endless. And the collective energy that goes into all of the elaborate possibilities is mind-boggling. Somewhere along the way, though, I regained my sense of self and just put a teddy bear and a balloon in the middle of the dining room table. Done. (laughs) Traditions, like the tradition of a child's first birthday party, are fundamental. Traditions anchor our values. We love our children, our spouses, our parents, so we spend time and energy celebrating their birthdays. Of course, it's not only birthdays. Our lives are filled with rich customs that speak to our identity, where we live and who we are. But those traditions can also be sources of stress and inadequacy. Sometimes the expectations and competition they create ends up turning these special times into a rat race. Whose Halloween decorations are the most unique? Who hosted the most memorable Christmas party? Whose Titan's tailgate is the most decked out? Before we know it, the pressure to be super parent or super fan threatens to steal away all of the things that make these traditions joyful, threatens to make us forget to give thanks that your child is a year older and that friends and family have an opportunity to gather together to celebrate. A little icing and laughter are really all we need. We sense this dynamic as we read today's gospel. Jesus is preaching in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. As Jesus is teaching, a woman comes in who has not been able to stand up straight for 18 years. She never asks to be healed, 
but Christ notices her, lays his hands on her, and she stands up straight. In fact, there's no real suggestion that she has come to the synagogue expecting to be cured, yet he sees her and cures her, and she begins to praise God. After witnessing this, the leader of the synagogue doesn't denounce Jesus. He denounces the woman. He tells the now-healed congregant that there are six other days she could have come to be cured other than the Sabbath. In the middle of this moment of joy and light, he chastises her and makes her feel unwelcome. And in this moment, tradition, the Sabbath tradition, is presented as dry and inflexible, existing for its own sake. Yet, lest you feel the temptation to condemn this religious leader as an old fuddy-duddy, Keep in mind that his understanding of the Sabbath is entirely consistent with the law. You are not supposed to do any work on the seventh day. It's a day of rest and renewal, handed down by God to the Hebrews as a gift and benefit after years and years of toil as slaves in Egypt. The idea that the Israelites would now have a day set aside to rest from toil, renew their souls and their bodies, and worship God was and remains undoubtedly good news for all who, uh, of us who observe it. I think... If we were to ask this religious leader to explain why he was so angry, he would probably talk about the slippery slope. If you start making exceptions for one thing or another, what once was a clear-cut standard becomes riddled with holes, and soon no one is observing the Sabbath day. It loses its potency and power as a gift and becomes a suggestion. If we're honest, a lot of us adopt this type of logic too. Maybe not about the Sabbath, but what about other little and big rules and traditions we follow? Big and small, important and trivial, we all have them. And I know at times I struggle with knowing when to push against them and when to stay cleanly within their bounds. But Jesus argues that he isn't breaking the Sabbath. And certainly, he wouldn't have seen himself as a Sabbath breaker. In this story, Christ is operating well within Jewish tradition. 
having a debate with a fellow Jew about how to broadly interpret the Jewish prohibition on work during the day of rest. For Jesus, the seventh day tradition is always informed by mercy, freedom, and redemption. It's an understanding of the Sabbath day that is fundamentally couched in the Exodus story itself, a story of freedom from bondage through God's unimaginable grace. The law helps us order our lives, but his grace creates a life outside of the bondage worth living. The law helps us order the world around us and orients us to God, but his grace provides the guiding logic of love and mercy that animates his creation. The law teaches us to love each other and to practice radical forgiveness. His grace restores us to the family of God when we inevitably fail. As Christ says in the Gospel of Mark, the Sabbath is made for us, not vice versa. God's holy time, the time we set aside for God, no matter when or where we observe it, is always about the giving of life. And when God is actively moving in the world, when he is up to something, we should prepare ourselves to be unbound from our normal expectations. Put a different way, we should always prepare ourselves to find the capacity for radical hospitality, extreme inclusion, and redemptive community building. Jesus' story is a story that is fundamentally outward-looking. The Gospels are the story of God drawing the circle wider and wider until all human bonds are undone. A story of God drawing us closer into fellowship through Christ. The traditions, rituals, and religious laws, all of these are important. They are the manifestation of our values, ideals, and ethics. They provide the rhythm of our collective life together as a Christian community. And they remind us always of God's free gift of grace. The question then is, what do we do with this radical outpouring? The question then is, what do we do when the unexpected happens? When it seems as if grace and freedom are in conflict with law and tradition, 
Do we give way to one or the other? Or do we, like Christ, find the love, creativity, and imagination to realize that what might seem like conflict isn't conflict at all? At the heart of our traditions, laws, and rituals is mercy. The mercy that God shows his people. The mercy that we show one another. The love and redemption that flows from the Exodus all the way to the cross and all the way to the Eucharistic table. So lean into the mercy and hold on tight to God's radical hospitality. Because when we meet the world's suffering with love and empathy, we can never be far from the truth. Amen.